For those who don't know me, uh, my name's Tim Froze. I'm uh, the site pastor here in Vancouver. Um, I, uh, I had the privilege over the last uh, couple of weeks of being able to uh, go on a little holiday with my family. Uh, and we, uh, we were able to, to drive down the coasts of Oregon and of Northern California and just had time to be able to, to stop explore the shorelines and beaches and vistas and redwood forests of uh, just all these amazing places. And uh, I, I love being able to, to do these kinds of things. I'm always so amazed by what God has created um, and just the, the majesty of what he's done, the, the wonder um, of what he's created and how it points to him um, and, and just tells of, of who he is and and what he's doing and so it's so these kinds of things they're quite remarkable for me and you know they just it just fills my heart to be able to see these kinds of places um on one of the days as we we entered uh, a redwood grove in, in northern california and uh there are these huge trees and and so we're you know about two minutes into this trail and there's this there's this beautiful, iconic scene, uh, you know, just when, you know, when the sun is just coming beautifully through the trees um, and, you know, just the lighting on everything on the ground. <clears throat> and, and I see this, this fallen tree and what appears to be a hobbit walking along the top of the tree. And, and as a, as a G.R. Tolkien fan, I was very excited to, you know, be encountering a hobbit. Um, but, as it turns out, it wasn't a hobbit. Uh, it was just an Amish man, and which explains, you know, the the old-fashioned clothing and you know the suspenders and the little round glasses. And as I got close to him to talk to him, you know, he wasn't even that much shorter than me. But the the trees are just so big that a fully grown man walking along the top of them just looks like a child in comparison. Um, but uh, yeah, so that was, that was a lot of fun, and, uh, and I got a chance then to, to talk to him and to one of his, his friends who was with him, and, and he just shared with me how he and his family were, were also uh, just, uh, just being toured around the United States to all these different uh, beautiful uh, national parks and beautiful places, uh, just so that they could bask in the wonder of God and the work of his hands and the beauty of all that he has made. And, and it was for, for him his opportunity to worship God and to enjoy him and just to be refreshed uh, in his joy and hope in the Lord. And I was, I was, so, I was so encouraged just to, to meet him and be able to talk with him about that. And, but the tension in this moment of our meeting is that we were actually both in this grove of trees on that day because we were both avoiding soaring heat somewhere else. Um, because we both changed our plans to avoid 47 degrees Celsius weather somewhere else in another part of California. Um, and, and, and so there's this, you know, this, this, this tension that's, that's, that's going on. Because as, as we were touring around... Uh, being able to enjoy the beauty of God's handiwork, there's these simultaneous signs 
of, of brokenness through strained ecosystems. And, um, and in the news at the time going on, economies under pressure and massive wars and corrupt leaders and displaced people. And there's this tension that we, that we face in these moments, isn't, isn't there? These, that, that there's these, these massive problems that, that fill our headlines and our social media feeds held against the, the beauty of the good that God has done and the beauty that God is doing around us. And so, so that amid these pockets of beauty, we, we see signs of the fall and, and signs of sin and signs of brokenness that, that seep their way uh, into all, all areas of life, whether, whether globally or nationally or right down to our individual lives personally. In any given week, one might be celebrating a wedding while one mourns the loss of a loved one. One celebrates health while another faces frightening diagnosis. One thrives at work while another is struggling just to manage life. These are the tensions that we face, aren't they? And when we face these problems, whether, whether global or personal, we, we seek solutions of people or things that we can place our hope in to get us out of these situations, to help resolve these, these problems for us, uh, to, to give us, in a sense, the, the better life. And so, we, so we, we find people and things to place our hope in. So sometimes we, uh, we place our hope in, in better science and technology. Uh, we think science and technology, they're, they're going to help us out of our ecological problems. Uh, people, are, people are really smart. Better technology can save us, right? Surely we can engineer our way out of the problem. And so for some problems, uh, we place our hope in better understanding or better technology or our uh, that our collective knowledge uh, is, is what's going to save us. Uh, I, I met another man on, on our trip who reminded me that uh, we just need a better political leader to solve the problems that we're facing in our world, uh, in our lives. That, that if we can only just have a better political leader, that he or she will solve the economic and the social problems that we, that we face, and, and life will be better for everyone if, if this person could have most of the power. And so, and so we're, we're tempted to place our hope in a better human leader. Or sometimes, actually, our, our personal challenges are just so overwhelming uh, and take up so much of the, the space and our emotions and our, and our minds that, that we actually don't have capacity to think about uh, global or national issues. We're just, we're just, I'm like just focused on the, the challenges that are like immediately right in front of ourselves. And, and, and so that, that consumes our, our focus and our energy. And so we pursue, uh, we might pursue techniques or solutions or people or things that can place our hope in that are, that are able to 
that we think might be able to get us out of this difficult situation. And I can't help but be struck by the contrast between the wonder and worship and hope that filled the mind of this Amish man that I talked to versus the fear and conflict and conniving that I encounter um, in other areas in response to problems in other areas of our lives. Uh, some of you might have heard uh, Russell Brand on social media. Um, I, I keep, keep showing up on, on my feeds. He has this, I don't know much else about what he says, I just know this, and I, and I like it. But he, he talks about how, how, people, uh, how people inherently worship something or someone. And so that if we, don't, if we don't worship God, who is worthy of worship, we'll end up worshiping the mundane or the ordinary. That we'll end up worshiping people or things that actually aren't worthy of our worship. But this is what we so often do, that, that, we, that we, we place our hope in and even worship the ordinary or unworthy things in our lives. In, in so many of the problems that we face as individuals or as societies, we end up putting our hope in all of these different people or things or ourselves to solve the problems that, that we're facing. And we end up practicing something that the Bible calls idolatry. And, and sure, an, an idol, it's a, it's a, you know, it's, it's can technically and be a physical representation of something that the people worship. Um, you know, it can be talked about in scripture as, as, a, as a false god. Uh, and, but conceptually, an idol is also just anything that we place our hope in other than Jesus. It, an idol just, can just be anything that we place our hope in other than Jesus. And, um, and so, then, so then this is the thing, that at, that the, that the end of John... After everything else he's said in the letter that we've been going through, that John warns his readers about. And it's a surprising moment because it's a surprising last line to, uh, to, his, to his letter because, because John hasn't spoken the word idol at all in the entirety of the rest of what he's written. Until the very last sentence, when he says, Dear children, keep yourselves from idols. And, you know, I, I think if, at first when we read, we might be tempted to wonder if he just got cut off. Like, like maybe he was going to write more, but he was in a hurry. Oh, I got to go. Okay, that's, that's good enough, right? Or, or so maybe, maybe he just got cut off. Or, or maybe, you know, we might think like, oh, maybe you know, at some point along the way, a scribe was transcribing the letter to make another copy and just added that line at the end. You know, maybe we think that. Um, but I think, I think if we reflect on it for a moment, we realize that actually keeping yourselves from idols kind of sums up most of what John has been writing about and warning the readers about for most of this letter. Because when people place their hope in something or someone other than Jesus, they end up being ruled by that thing. They end up in slavery to that someone. 
When we do this, we end up walking in darkness instead of in light. When we do this, we end up being under the rule of the evil one instead of being ruled by God. When we do this, we become more and more caught up in self and in selfish ambition, which leads to a failure to love others. When we do this, we end up living apart from God instead of living in him. We end up missing out on the core of who we are created to be in relationship to our Father in heaven. And so just as John has done throughout his letter of 1 John, he closes by, by holding hope in Christ in tension with a, with a warning against placing that hope anywhere else. That warning against idolatry. Which begs the question, where do you place your hope? In who or in what do you place your hope? I wish that I could say that my hope was always purely in Jesus. Truthfully, I think that my motives are sometimes a little bit more mixed than that. Because I'm sometimes tempted to believe that a certain political leader would make life better than another. And so I'm tempted to put more value in them than I should. Um, I can place my hope uh, in the idea that a holiday can save me from the stress that I'm trying to manage in my life. And I can overvalue that. Uh, I can place hope in myself that if only I had better control over the different factors in my life, that then, then maybe my life would be better, uh, that maybe then I could experience more success than I currently do. And we're surrounded by these idols that, that tempt us and, and offer, us, uh, th offer us their allegiance or, or tempt us to offer them our allegiance and to place our, our hope in them and to place our hope in these things. Idols that promise to make our lives better if we follow them, if we put them first, if we follow their way for life. So where do you place your hope? John doesn't mince words in his response to this. What he says is, is very clear. He says, you guys, there is only one true hope. There is only one way, one thing, one person who can offer us real hope today and for eternity. In verse 11 and 12, he writes, God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. He's pretty direct and clear, isn't he? The only hope we can truly have is in the Son of God, Jesus. There is only one hope for eternal life. One hope 
for life now and for life always. That's it. Dear children, keep yourselves from idols, he says. There is no hope there. They can't help you. They can't save you. If you have the Son of God, you have life and you are free. If you don't have the Son of God, you don't have life and you are not free. There is this moment in in the Gospel of John, chapter 6, where, where Jesus is saying some hard things, some things very much like this. And some of the disciples who've been following him, uh, they turned back and stopped following him. That these things were, were too hard to hear, uh, too strict. And so Jesus turns to the, to the 12 disciples and says to them, do you want to go away as well? And Peter responds and he says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. There is no other hope. There is no other salvation. There is no other ultimate answer to the ultimate problems that we face outside of Jesus. And and as I, as I read this in, in Scripture, I'm aware of both how freeing and simple it is and yet how controversial a statement like this is, that eternal life is found only in Jesus. Because we want to ask, well, aren't there any exceptions? I mean, you know, what, what, if, I'm a, what if I'm a really good person? What if I'm a really good person and I do a lot of good things, uh, but I don't believe uh, in, in Jesus? What, what, about, what about then? Um, and, you know, and can God really be good if, uh, if a good person can't have eternal life because they don't know Jesus, right? And so we, we go on the offensive. Fair questions. Um, why, why do we want to place our hope in our performance. I, I think that on the, on the spectrum of places where we want to place our, our hope, that we, that we like to place it in our performance because, you know, it gives us, I, I think, a semblance of control and, and a feeling of, of self-sufficiency. But, but it, you know, if I think about my, myself and, and how much I mess up, I'm actually like, boy, I, it's probably a bad idea, actually, if I place it in my performance. But, but we're so tempted to do that. And even despite knowing actually how, how bad my performance can be, I'm still tempted by that, um, which is not sure why. But, but the good news, the good news is actually that it's not about our performance. It's about Jesus' performance. And yes, when, when we receive him in our lives, the, the performance of our lives begins to reflect him and begins to reflect his goodness and, um, and the actions of our lives begin to reflect the good that, that he is. But when we get it the other way around the, and put performance first, it actually becomes about pride and about selfishness. When what Jesus is inviting us into is actually for it to be about relationship with him, 
so that, so that how we live is a reflection of, the, of love and relationship with him. When it's our performance, we're still in bondage to sin and selfishness and idolatry. When we're in Christ, we are free in him and we get to walk in freedom of love and relationship with him and with others. And so at the end of his letter, John here encourages the reader with this truth and with all the ways that we get to walk in the freedom of Christ rather than in bondage to sin and idolatry. And he spells this out in what I would spell it as as, as four and a half ways. Um, So, uh, the, the freedom that we receive in Christ when we walk with, with him. The, the first freedom that we receive is assurance. In, in verse 13, uh, those who believe in the Son of God can know that they have eternal life. This is a big deal. Assurance is a big deal. Uh, if, you, if you went to see the Barbie or Oppenheimer movie this weekend you probably went online or on an app and you, and you bought your tickets to the movie with a selected seat. You had assurance before you even went to the theater that you had both a ticket to the movie and you even knew which seat you were going to be seeing in, sitting in. I remember the days when we would drive up to the theater on the opening night of a really popular movie and you had no assurance whatsoever that you were going to get in to see that movie. You'd, you'd arrive as early as you calculated that you, that you needed to or could, could get there because maybe you had work. And so you'd get there as early as you can and you'd stand in a long line outside of the theater. Some of you have, exp- have experienced this. You know what I'm talking about. And you'd stand in this long line with the hope that, oh, I hope I get in to, to see the movie. And, and, and so then you'd, you'd get to the beginning and you'd, and you'd get to buy a ticket and then you'd get to go inside and stand in another long line waiting to get into the theater you were going to go in hoping that you'd get a good seat you had no idea if you were going to get, even get to sit with the friend that you went with to the movie. And when the doors to that theater would finally open, there was the mad scramble to get inside and to finally get good seats. I tell you, it was madness. My kids have no idea what I'm talking about when I talk about this. They've never experienced this. Um, and this is the approach, though that it seems that some are comfortable to take when it comes to eternity. Like, oh, I guess I'll, I guess I'll just wait and see how it goes when I die. I, I'll get in line, and hopefully I'll get in and get a good seat. But John says, there is no line. Either you have Jesus, and you have assurance, or there is no assurance. Friends, I'm not I'm not normally a salesman. I don't know that I'd be good at it. But if there is a moment for me to be a salesman and to say, buy today, don't miss out, this is it. 
Find assurance. Choose assurance in Jesus today. This is it. Don't wait. And it gets better. Because closeness with God in eternity isn't for some future by and by. It's for today. Uh, C.S. Lewis says, the present moment is the point at which time touches eternity. That, that, that this moment right now is where we, where we get to experience the eternal presence of Christ already. That his presence in our lives begins now when we say yes to him. Verse 14 says, This is the confidence we have in approaching God, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. That this, that this confidence uh, that we have in Christ allows us to be close to God even today and to be able to approach him in a relationship of prayer. It enables us to walk in his presence and to walk in his will. Uh, and when we walk close to him, that we, that we pray in accordance with his will and we know that God hears our prayers He's given us confidence in Christ. And, uh, and, and the point that I think John is emphasizing is closeness with God, not so much simply that we're seeking a favorable answer in our prayers, but, but closeness with God. So often in prayer, uh, I think we approach God hoping to get whatever it is that, that we want, um, and we do get to ask we do get to have confidence to approach him and, and to ask him. And as a good father, God answers us, including the answer no, when we ask for something that he, that he knows isn't good for us. But the joy here is that we, get to, that we get to approach God. We get to have confidence in approaching him, in being close to him. And as we're close to him, we get to know him and, be, and that we, so that we begin to reflect him and so that even more and more, our requests of him and, and even how we, we talk with him and pray with him begins to reflect him, to reflect his will and to reflect his heart. And one of the ways uh, that his will becomes reflected in us is caring for others in prayer. That, that John invites us here uh, to pray for others about their sin so that God will give them life. And there's this, there's this tricky bit in there where John talks about not necessarily praying for sin that leads to death, and it can be easy to get hung up on that. I'm sure if you go to your D groups this week, you're going to like, hey, what's the, what's the thing that leads to, to death? I know at my D group for sure that's coming up. Um, but... Uh, but getting hung up on that isn't, isn't really the, I think would be to miss the point because the, the bigger point is that we're invited to care for others in prayer. We're invited to be concerned about the sins of others and to pray for them. We're invited to, to intercede for them that they, would re, that they would turn and receive life from God rather than death. For the wages of sin is death, but what Christ is offering us is life. And I think I could add, you know, I don't think John's giving us permission to, to gossip 
about someone in, in their sin. This, this isn't a moment, as the kids would say, to spill the tea. Um, this, uh, but that we're, we're being invited to, to care for the well-being of others in their sin, to love them by praying for them, to see them with the eyes of Jesus who loves them and who died for them and who longs even more than you or I to see them find life in Christ. And so we get to pray for others in their sin and join Jesus in his work of redemption and salvation of others. And a further freedom that we receive from being in Christ is freedom from sin. Because John writes in verse 18, anyone born of God does not continue to sin. Which, as we've talked about in this series, um, as we've gone through it, the, the true and hard challenge that we're called to live out is being free from sin and to not sin. But the, but the best part here of what John says is that he explains why. Because he says, the one who is born of God keeps them safe. Why don't those in Christ sin? Because Jesus keeps us safe. He protects us. He's with us. It's like what Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 10, 13. He says, No temptation has overtaken you except what is common to mankind. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide you a way out so that you can endure it. We are not on our own when we face temptation to sin. We are not on our own when we stand in that dark alley faced with the sin that so easily entangles us. Jesus is there with us to keep us safe. Uh, my wife Charlotte and I were once in New Orleans and we'd, uh, we'd be encouraged, we'd been encouraged to check out the French market and the French Quarter, and some had suggested that, you know, maybe we should even check out Bourbon Street, since it's such a famous street. It's, uh, it's the one Mardi Gras uh, it goes down and stuff. And, uh, and so, you know, the people that told us this, they were aware it's not necessarily a good street, but, you know, you're there, maybe you should just at least check it out, right? So, um, so I thought, okay, we'll go check it out. Which, in retrospect, was not a good thought. Charlotte was pregnant with Isaiah at the time. We were pushing uh, Myra in a stroller, and we got half a block down Bourbon Street, and I'm like, all right, we are very much out of place on this, on the street. This is the wrong place for us to be. We need to leave this street. Because of all the places I've been, uh, maybe there's other places worse, but of all the places I've been, if I had to pick a location that most represented sin as a location on a map, I'd have to pick Bourbon Street. It's remarkable. And thankfully, I wasn't alone in that moment. Uh, maybe, it would have been, maybe it would have been harder, and maybe I would have faced more temptation from the signs in the windows if I'd been alone. But I, but I wasn't alone. Charlotte was with me. And Jesus is with us like Charlotte was with me when we face temptation. 
that we are not alone when we face temptation and sin. He protects us from harm. And we can turn to him and say, I don't think I should be here. And he'll say, I don't think so either. Why don't we leave? Jesus brings us freedom from sin, and he protects us. And then finally, God sets us free to understand him. That even though there is a blindness that comes from the darkness of evil in this world, Jesus has given us his spirit to understand, to take the blinders off and to see and to understand in a new way. Uh, one, of the, one of the best times that I think we get to, to see this happen is when people first come to faith and are baptized. Because uh, beforehand, you know, one day they can, they can be, you know, pretty unsure about Jesus, and they're not sure if they want to believe, and, and there's, you know, there can be some things sometimes in Scripture that just seem really unclear to them, and then there's this conviction of the Holy Spirit that they experience and that they respond to and say yes to Jesus, and suddenly it's two weeks later, and they're super on fire for Jesus, and they're telling everyone about him, and they're, they're, they're speaking things that were like, hey, where did you learn that? And we know where they learned it, because they've received the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is in them, helping, helping them, helping us to know who Jesus is, to know his way, to understand him, to understand his word in ways that we couldn't before we had him in our lives. When we say yes to Jesus and are in him, he takes the blinders off and we're able to understand him by the Spirit in ways that we couldn't before. Which lays forth the invitation of James chapter 1, verse 5, which says, If any of you lack wisdom, you should ask God, who gives generously to all, without finding fault, and it will be given you. We can ask God for wisdom and understanding. He wants to give it to us. He wants us to understand him. We can ask this of him. He gives this freedom generously. All we have to do is ask. Friends, the hope and the freedom we have in Jesus so vastly outweighs the brokenness and bondage that awaits us without him. He gives us freedom and assurance of eternal life. He gives us closeness to himself in a relationship of prayer. And we have freedom to join him as we pray for others to be set free. He gives us freedom from sin, and he protects us. He gives us freedom to understand him, to see and experience and understand life with him. The freedom we have in Jesus so vastly outweighs the brokenness and bondage of the alternatives. But there is temptation all around us to place our hope in someone or something else, to give our allegiance to someone or something else. And so I ask again, where do you place your hope? Jesus has hope and freedom for you that can be found nowhere else. Could we renew our hope in him? Could you place your hope solely in him? And could we let go of all else that we hold on to 
so that we would have open hands to receive the freedom that he has for us in him. Would you pray with me? Father, I thank you for the the hope and the assurance that we have in Jesus. Lord, you know that that we face temptation all the time to place our our hope uh, in in someone or something else, to find assurance in someone or something else. But but you tell us, and I think we know from experience of, of, of failed attempts elsewhere, that the only hope and assurance that there is is in you that you are right and you are true when you tell us this. Lord, I pray that that you would help us to set aside and uh, and to set down all of the other things, any other things that that we are holding on to, that we are placing our hope in, that we are aligning ourselves with so that we could have you as our only hope is the only one that we are aligning ourselves with, that we would be in you, that we would be able to walk in the hope and the freedom and the security that you have for us. Jesus, I thank you for your great love for us, that you would offer us this based not on our performance, but based on yours, and that we could receive this from you, that we could receive this gift and walk with you. Jesus, we love you. Thank you that you love us. Help us to walk in your love. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.